The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where every week for many, many years now, we've worked our fingers to the bone to bring you the information. <laughs> oh my gosh, I wish we were on television. <laughs> Mike brought in finger bones. I was waiting for you to use that one. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going to take a picture of this and put it up on our Real Life Real Estate Facebook page because that's freaking hilarious. It's a hand. It's bone. It's a hand with bones on it. Oh, we have fun. Anyway, yep. <laughs> Trying to get you the information and inspiration and fun. You need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And this is question and answer week. Which means it's kind of like open mic day. Not don't open mic. Even though he apparently opened somebody to bring me these finger bones here. Uh, it's open microphone day and, uh, any questions that you have that you've been wondering about saving up, whether it's like a general, what is this kind of question or a, uh, more specific, I got this deal going on question. You can call them in at 877-772-9658. Again, 877-772-9658. Or you can send them via email really at any time at uh, askvina at gmail.com. And I say any time because I only look at that email, you know, when I when it's a Wednesday or I know something's coming. Um, but when I see a radio show question, I move it out of the radio question inbox and generally answer it during the next Q and a day. So if you're all, I, I want to ask a question, I want to ask a question, but I don't know what it is. And then, you know, at five Oh one at six Oh one, you figure out what it is. You can still send it and you'll get it answered. Um, so yeah, got a got an inbox full of those. If you want to make sure that you actually get gotten to, you would call 877-772-9658 early on because sometimes we recently been leaving people on the phone because we just didn't have time uh, to get to them. While we are waiting for your calls and questions, the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati is having its annual networking picnic for real estate investors tomorrow. So if you are in the area, uh, you could certainly come out and, you know, hang out with some other investors, build some relationships, get some free food, all that kind of stuff. This meeting is open to the public and it is free to the public. However, I just looked at the 
attendance list, and it is currently at 114, and there are only 120 seats available. So there's only six seats left for that. So uh, especially those of you who already knew about it, kept meaning to register, but the holiday got in the way. You better go to CincinnatiRIA.com, that's CincinnatiREIA.com, and grab your registration because it's going to cut it off after six more people. So... Yeah. Question and answer day on real life real estate investing. Let's uh, go to the phones and talk to Tony, who's on line one in Columbus. Tony, welcome to real life real estate. Hey, Dina, you sound uh, different today. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the some rain came. It blew away all the smog. It was, it, I, I don't sound like I've spent the whole day drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes. It's cool. There it is. Well, first off, congratulations on your fast. Thank I've been you. following you on Facebook. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. And um, my question has to do with, in my marketing, I like to be able to say that I offer a finder's fee for someone who brings me a deal. Mm. And I just wanted to ask you, is there any words I want to say to phrase it correctly, you know what I mean, as far as memorializing it on a flyer or a card? How do I specify that I do that without trying to make it sound like I'm you know, hiring an employee or doing something else well unfortunately uh the act of paying such a fee is Mm -hmm. actually illegal in the state of ohio is that right and in most places in most places uh and the reason is that the powers that be at the division of real estate have decided that only people who have real estate licenses can accept a fee for procuring real estate for other people. And the 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 flip the flip side of that is you're not supposed to be paying people who aren't licensed agents to procure you deals, but that usually the way they tend to go at it is the person who received the fee finds themselves in big trouble. Uh, but oh, no, wow. you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to offer that either. And I know everybody does, not everybody does it, but lots of people offer the fee and lots of people mm-hmm. pay the fee and nothing happens because the division of real estate is unaware that the fee was offered or paid. Um, I do know somebody in Florida who had, uh, that state's division come down on them like a ton of bricks, like five figure fine for offering to pay wow. a $500 finder's fee and i'm not even sure they actually paid one i think it was just the the advertising uh that they did it so the other thing is i don't know that 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 offering those fees is is especially effective i don't know that people are you know i assume you're you're including these on like a house for i want to buy your house type of marketing right yeah i mean if someone you know sent me a a lead on someone who was looking to sell their home and I followed up on it and got a deal. Mm-hmm. I gave him a little piece. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh no, I I understand. I think I think it's a great thing to do. I think it's a great thing to want to do. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be against license law. <laughs> wow! You know, I'm so glad I called with this question <laughs> in Ohio and in most places. So, um, and 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 when when the person you're reaching out to is somebody who's a potential seller with a property and a problem kind of thing. I'm not sure that that's something that's especially interesting or compelling to them. I, I think it's going to be very few people who look at it and go, oh, that's interesting. My brother needs to sell a house. 
But even if they were, I don't think that the cash offer is probably necessary to get what you what you want to get. I think probably just literally asking in the PS for any referrals, right? You know, like saying okay. saying something like, I really, really, really need to buy a couple of houses this month. And so I would appreciate you letting me know about anybody you know who might need to sell a house, condo, whatever, you know, whatever kinds of properties you're interested in. And, mm-hmm. and you know, keep keep a hold of this letter in case somebody, in case you you need to sell or somebody else does. I think something like that might have literally just as much effect. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's illegal, it's illegal. So there it is. Yeah. You, you are allowed to offer your eternal gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, again, I'm very glad I'm call- I called in and asked because I was ready to print the card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's unfortunate that they've just, see, here's what, here's what gets me about the law. I get it that you need to have the training and the the oversight of the state and the escrow accounts and all that sort of stuff to handle other people's money. Like if 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 you're a property manager and you're collecting rents for somebody else and then needing to pay them, you should have some training and you should have a license to lose, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. If you are acting acting in a deal on behalf of someone else, you know, you're, you're the agent for the seller. You're supposed to be standing in their shoes. You have a fiduciary duty that is sort of put upon you by the fact that you have a license and also by the NAR code of regulation, all that kind of stuff. Because you could go act in your own interest instead. You could tell us, you could tell a buyer, you know, I, I, I shouldn't be telling you this, but he, you should offer $50,000 less because he'll take it because you're more interested in getting your commission than you are in getting the seller the top price. Right. So I get in those situations sure. why the state wants us to have licenses. What you are asking for here is just give me the name and phone number of somebody who might have a property for sale. Right. You're not asking to handle anybody's money. You're not asking. You're you're the principal in the transaction, so you're not asking to like stand in somebody's place as a fiduciary. It doesn't seem like give me a name and number and I'll give you some money rises to the level of practicing real estate. Sure. Yeah. But the law can easily be read to say that that is practicing real estate and that is how the state divisions of real estate tend to read it well what about like when you have bird dogs those are also illegal uh if you're paying them in cash money then yep it falls into exactly the same category wow you know years ago there were software programs that specifically had bird dogs capture pages even that said you know go out you, you know what i'm saying yeah, and it, and it still goes on, and in probably ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the cases, nothing bad happens to anybody because it's just it's just under the radar, you know, until until somebody up at the division gets it gets the bit between their teeth and decides that this is a really good way to like show people the what for because if that happens, <laughs> there's a lot of people that are going to get the what for, and so sure. it, it continues to go on and nobody thinks about it in relationship to license law. 
if they are bird dogging for you in return for um they you are going to walk them through how wholesale deal works you know you're going to show them how a negotiation happens for rental property we're going to you're going to uh, take them through a property that you're going to end up buying or wholesaling and you're going to show them how to estimate repair costs it's it's a little hard to say that they got a fee Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Now, now wow. don't 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 consider any of this legal advice because, of course, I'm I'm not no, an, no, no. I'm not an attorney and I'm not up in the heads of the people at the division who uh, actually are the ones who get to enforce all of this stuff. But yeah, it's um it's kind of a it's kind of a silly situation when you come when you come right down to it. Who you you can't seriously consider. Go driving for dollars for me, and I will pay you five dollars for every address you bring me, and then I'll take it from there. That that cannot truly be the practice of real estate. Come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Vina. I mean, like like I said, I had no idea. Well, you and probably everybody else is listening. <laughs> so, thanks for the question. Yeah. Absolutely welcome. Well, you have a blessed day, and again, thank you so much. All right. You too. I'll see you when you're here with Ron later this month. Yeah. Yeah, except remember, remember, I announced that I'm escaping to Europe that week because Ron Ron told everybody on our Rhea Kori meeting that they should give me a big hug and a big kiss when they saw me. Yeah. So I'm 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 avoiding molestation. <laughs> by, by oh God. my goodness! <laughs> that was that's the whole reason I was coming. All right, fine, I'll still show. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! This is just never going to end. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I appreciate your call. Your call. Enjoy the enjoy the Ron event, and um, I'll see you probably in August. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you so much, Mina. All Have right. A great day. <laughs> you too. Bye bye. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Uh, That means you can give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. And somebody, somebody just sent me an email saying, what Ron event? Okay, go to CincinnatiRia.com. Look at July 28th and 29th. It's a, that's actually two different events. I mean, it's the same event. It's just one's in Columbus and one's in Cincinnati. And uh, it's with Ron Legrand. And it covers a wide range of topics, all of which are about the fastest and easiest way to make money in real estate in the current market. Um, it It is in person in Cincinnati or in person in Columbus. But we did talk Ron into letting us simulcast the day that is in Cincinnati, the Friday. So you can also sign up for it uh, via simulcast. And it's, as always, pretty inexpensive. And while we're on the topic, on uh, Saturday, this upcoming Saturday, uh, Randy Hughes is doing an all-day how to, how to, how and why to create your first land trust class online uh, so you'll see that on the Cincinnati Rhea calendar as well. He's actually uh, giving away 
an actual land trust template, which is like the, the class is like 47 bucks if you're a member and 97 if you're not a member. And I paid $1,800 for my first land trust uh, template that I got back in the day from an attorney. And that was back in the day was like in the 90s. It was $1,800. I don't even know what it costs now. So, um, yeah, well, we're signing up for that. If you can't, uh, if you can't be there in person on Zoom on Saturday, then you can just get the recording next week. It'll, it'll be recorded and they'll send out the recording along with that land trust next week. Um, and of course he does more than just go through the trust with you and show you how to fill it out. He, he also talks about all the different things land trusts can do, which are pretty cool. So, uh, Real life real estate investing. And we're in Q&A day today, which means that you can uh, either call in your real estate questions at 877-772-9658. Again, 877-772-9658. Or alternatively, you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com and seeing no new people up on the phone screen i am going to go to the email questions uh this one is from sue from columbus she says i'm a real estate agent in columbus and a member of co there are, are there are advantages and disadvantages to being a realtor in the creative deal structuring world that i'm now in my husband has also been licensed, but did not renew his license last year because of the fees. This year, our broker has set up a referral brokerage where he can pay just $200 a year to stay active. We work well together. I want him to be part of this with me. Uh, my question is, in your opinion, is there any reason it would be beneficial for him to remain unlicensed as we make offers to purchase properties creatively? Uh, so Sue, first of all, I'm, I'm, I am curious about what you think the disadvantages are to you in having a real estate license. Cause I was told back in the day when I first was getting into real estate by almost every real estate investor that I knew that you shouldn't get a real estate license. And the, and the, there were two big reasons for it. One was, you had to disclose that you were a real estate agent to every buyer seller potential buyer seller tenant etc uh, which was true and still is true and the second one was because you are held to a higher standard in court should some deal go bad and you end up in court over it uh, both of those things are still true however i've had a real estate license since like 92 or something because to me, the advantages outweighed the disadvantages. And in particular, those two big ones that I was told were so scary. Um, the disclosure thing, yes, you got to do it. But I was talking to a lot of people who had been um, real estate investors since maybe the late 60s to mid 80s, right? So they were they were used to a particular way that the world worked and one of the ways those world that world worked and i i'm not making this up you can you can go read the book of lists and see this at that time real estate agents were kind of in the bottom five respected <laughs> um, professions it was like politician used car dealer real estate agents or something like that 
And the uh, the National Association launched a, a campaign back in the I was probably mid to late 80s that that was meant to both improve public perception of agents and also meant to uh, kind of bring all the educational requirements together so that everybody was getting the same information and understood the law and understood appraisal and all that kind of stuff. And it worked. People don't really disrespect real estate agents anymore. So, so telling somebody you're a real estate agent doesn't really, they're not going to go, oh, well then, I'm not going to let you buy my house. The hell do a higher standard thing. Um, I think that that also applies to any real estate perfect. Look, if you, if you're in court with some civilian seller who says that you ripped them off by buying their house subject to, you're still going to be viewed as the, knowledgeable, sophisticated investor who clearly took advantage of this poor, unsophisticated, ignorant, that's not, that's not what I think of them, but that's maybe what the jury would think of them, uh, seller. And, and so, yeah, it's going to, it's not like all encoded like it is in, uh, in the NAR rules, but it's, it, I think it's just still the case that you're at a disadvantage in court. So treat people right. Do your paperwork right. Do what you say you're going to do. Don't go to court. Don't buy from people who don't really want to sell. Don't buy from people who aren't sitting down at the, at the closing table just as happy as clams. Don't buy from people, especially creatively, that you haven't disclosed everything to in writing and let them see that a long time before they sit at the closing table. So, I'm sorry, that wasn't your question, but I often answer uh, people's questions with answers that they didn't ask for. Um, the husband thing, having him not have a license is not going to change that you have to disclose that you have a real estate license. Like if you're in the deal, you have to disclose it. Your marketing has to disclose it. Uh, this is a really common question. People think, well, I, I won't have a license, but my husband, who's the co-owner of my LLC with me, is going to go out and make all the offers so we don't need to disclose. We don't need to put anything in our marketing that says I'm a licensed real estate agent. You'd need to put in your marketing that, or he would need to put in his marketing that, P.S., my wife is a licensed real estate agent. This is, we're, but we're not looking to list your house. We're looking to buy it. Uh, this is not an offer of agency. You'd still have to put all that usual disclosure language in there. So the only reason he should hold on to his license is that he wants access to the MLS, which seems sort of silly because you already have it. So hope that answered your actual question, Sue. Uh, it's question and answer week on real life, real estate investing, 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is you. If you have real estate questions, give me a call, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. Meanwhile, back to the inbox. Man, I may spend the rest of the whole show on this question. Uh, this one's from Keith. Uh, he says, I'm looking for multifamilies in the Cincinnati area. The purchase price is, on most buildings have mortgage payments that far exceed the rent averages, let alone 
uh, taxes, maintenance, etc. I'd have to raise the rent 300 plus dollars in some cases. This seems extremely unfair to the tenants and at face value, it looks like it just adds to the housing issues. My questions are, how are people able to pay asking price and make an actual profit without raising the extent to such extremes? Okay, so I'll, I'll just knock that one out of the way. They can't, Keith. They're not paying asking price and getting mortgages and not raising the rents and making an actual profit. It, it, it's not happening. Some people are buying them that way because they, and it depends on the size of the multifamily, but some of them are buying them that way because they don't know how to do the calculation you did and they don't realize that, you know, maintenance and vacancies and capital expenditures and all that kind of stuff uh, cut a hole into your profit and they basically go, well, let's see, the rent is 10000 a month and the mortgage payment $6,000 a month and I'm going to make... $4,000 a month. And in really in reality, they're going to be negative. Uh, there are some hedge funds and whatnot out there who will pay a, an almost a, a, a rate that makes a, a price that makes their cap, their uh, cap rate just incredibly low, like 3%. They have very low cost of funds. They're not getting the readily available seven and a half and eight percent 30 year mortgages they're raising money some other way that their cost of funds is low and they may be they may be buying it that way because it's actually a repositioning play i i can i can take this building i can do a hundred thousand dollars worth of work to it and i can raise the value and raise the rents and raise the value by four hundred thousand dollars and i'm going to resell it or refinance it or something Number two, what can investors do to help curb rent hikes and help neighborhoods? Or do you believe it shouldn't be our concern? Number three, how can investors work together to keep rentals affordable for those struggling without becoming uh, Section 8 housing? Uh, and then bonus question, and I'm reading these last three back to back on purpose because they're all related. It seems like greed has been masquerading as capitalism and has spread like a disease. It's been normalized to the point that we admire the behavior, shrug our shoulders, and contribute to the problem without considering the consequences. Can you convince your listeners this isn't the case? So, Keith, here's the thing. We, i.e. any rental property owner, have not created the market where... Rents have gone up drastically over about the last, it hasn't just been in the last few years. It's been, they've been an up, on an upward swing since about 2013, 2014. It is the market that decides what the rent is. It is not us. If I could just decide to raise my rents $300, why not raise them a million and retire with one rental property? Right. Like it's 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 the market that says what things rent for. It is not investors just going, I want to make more money this year. I want to make more money this year. I want to make more money this year. So what has been going on in the market for the last 10 years and and what is what is creating that and how do you undo it is the big question here. One of the things that's going on in the market is, of course, in, in the last three years, pretty drastic inflation. But when you look at real inflation across the board for the last decade, rents haven't gone up too much more than real inflation. 
And when you look at rent versus tuition, you look at rent versus medical care, you look at rent versus some of the things that get left out of the consumer price index, you'll see that they, you know, it's, it, they've, they've maybe gone up a little more, but not drastically more. Secondly, the reason they have gone up more is because there aren't enough properties. There, there aren't enough properties. Let's take Cincinnati, for example. The city went on a housing teardown spree in 2008, 9, 10, 11 until they ran out of money. And they, the reason they had the money to do, to tear down hundreds of houses in the exact neighborhoods that you are worried about is because they used the, their share of the settlement from the robo signing settlement to uh, tear down houses. And if you ask people at that time, if you ask the powers that be at that time, why they were tearing down houses that could be repaired and made into housing, they said, well, we're decreasing population density in these areas or their eyesores or. So here that decreasing population density in mostly lower income areas and leaving vacant lots where there used to be houses that while nobody was super interested in buying them in 2009 and doing $40,000 worth of work to them, they would have been very interested in buying them in 2018 and doing what would have then been $60,000 worth of work to them. Old policies. And now we're in this problem and nobody's saying, hey, why'd you tear down those hundreds of houses back in... 2009 and you tore down houses until you had no more money to tear down houses and now you're complaining that rents are up. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is building new properties, particularly in that sort of area. I mean, there's plenty of building going on in, in the, the exurbs where houses are 400 to a million dollars, right? There's, there's building going on right and left. What about these neighborhoods that I think you're referring to where the property might be worth, it could be worth as much as 200, but it might only be worth 150 and the rents are going to be, you might get a little above market because it's a really nice new house. Um, you might get, I don't know, 1500 a month for a three bedroom house. You can't build that house except as a charity. It's going to cost you more to build it and it's going to cost you more in a mortgage payment to pay the resulting debt than the property will be worth or that the rents will cover. Why is that? Well, lots of long-standing policies in the city about what you can build on a lot and how big a lot you can build on. Plus the extreme, like it, 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 it 20 years ago, the process of getting your zoning, getting your permits, getting your stuff run that you needed to get run was way quicker and cheaper than it is now. And this is true in cities all over the United States. Part of the problem is just the, the cost of the construction, but part of the problem is it's hard to get through the process of even breaking ground. And add to that, that if I could build, there are... I don't know how many 25 foot wide by 50 foot or 100 foot deep lots in the city of Cincinnati that are just growing weeds. Like nobody even wants them. The neighbor mows it because it's nice that they have an extra place for their kids to play, but they don't actually own the lot. Uh, 
I have to get a huge zoning variance to even put up a property on that place. What might make it economically feasible for me to do that is to put up a two family so I can get a, I can get more rents. I'd have to get a variance to put a two family on a lot that was zoned single family. I would have to get a variance to do something that you actually could do there because there's a, there's a real problem with setbacks and a lot that size. I could turn the property sideways so that your entrance was on the side and I could, on some of those lots, I could build, you know, three townhouse style properties. I have to get a zoning variance and it's probably not going to happen. So it's all of these policies that have led to making it difficult or impossible to build in these areas that have created the rental shortage, which is what has created the rising rents. And again, I'm using Cincinnati example, but nationwide. Now there's some rumbling here and probably in other places about we're going to allow accessory dwelling units, which would take care of some of the problem. We're going to let people who've got a big lot build a like a tiny little tiny house that somebody can rent in the backyard. And then the neighborhoods have an uprising and say, well, we don't want that because that's just going to be more Airbnb properties. Okay, yeah, but every every extra property that somebody uses an Airbnb means that's one that they didn't buy and take off the market and uses an Airbnb. It's all, it. this really does all trickle down. If the folks in those areas who wanted to buy a house could find a house to buy, they would vacate their existing house, which might mean somebody could move up into it as a homeowner or might mean a rental owner could buy it and put it online as a rental property. Your your problem isn't with, quote, greed. The, the, it's, it's the market that says what the rents are. Your problem is with a decade or two's worth of policies that have created a housing shortage and it's all just kind of coming to a head because you know add to that inflation and you have a real affordability problem so what i would say keith is get active with your local legislators Um, if you're a member of cincinnati ria there is a whole committee that that's what they do is they go and talk to city council people in in little cities cincinnati and all those cities around it and say these things you know say this is this is what you need you want rents to go down this is what you need to do make more rentals more competition equals payments go down that's true in every industry including ours so uh you could get active with that group and they would be happy to have another body to go meet with council people and commissioners and all that sort of stuff and you know, show the show the facts of what's really going on because the way they react instead is they say rents are going up because landlords are greedy and we need to control them in every possible way, which is again bad for the rental market because I know a ton of people who have sold off all of their city of Cincinnati rentals not because they didn't like them, not because they weren't making money, but rather because the city passed so many laws and restrictions that they just went, you know what, I'm going to go take my money and put it someplace where the local authorities either appreciate or don't seem to absolutely hate their rental housing providers. Yeah, so we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Bruce in St. Louis, who's been waiting patiently through my diatribe about government interference in housing. Um, We'll be back right after this. 
Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's Question and Answer Week, and if he's still there, we're going to talk to Bruce on line one from St. Louis. Bruce, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hello. Hi, Bruce. Howdy. Uh, I guess I, howdy. Uh, I guess I beat Dwayne to the questions this week. Um, <laughs> uh, probably, probably a, a couple of questions here. Um, I don't know how involved it is, uh, and, it, and it's at the same time a semi promo for this Saturday and the twenty eighth. Um, <laughs> is it best to have each property owned in its own separate LLC within a trust? And also with that trust with somebody who's the trustee who doesn't have the same last name as you, like I think Ron Legrand has suggested. And Ron had also suggested in one of his other talks way back when, uh, maybe putting your own home in a, a trust again with somebody who doesn't have the same last name as you, like it would be, uh, I don't know, beneficial, beneficial asset wise perhaps for him because he has so many properties. Um, I don't know if that's too many questions at once. Well, I, I think I, I, I think I, I think I sketched them all down. You can tell me if I don't answer one of them. Um, let's start with the last one first about your own home being in a trust. The uh, I have my home in a trust and a land trust for privacy purposes. Where I think I should have it is in a living trust for privacy and probate purposes. Uh, land trust and living trust are not the same thing. Living trusts are way more expensive to set up, but uh, they also they also do some stuff for you in the way of avoiding probate. So if if privacy, if if just not having people be able to show up at your door because they looked you up in the public record is an issue for you, uh, moving the moving your own home to a trust. With you as the beneficiary, not an LLC or anything, you as the beneficiary uh, does provide that. And my understanding from talking to Randy Hughes and other people is that uh, from from the IRS's perspective, that land trust is kind of it's a non it's a non entity. It doesn't have a tax ID number or anything. So you still deduct your mortgage interest and all that stuff on your own tax return, and you still have the ability, to, you still have your Section 121 exclusion, right? You can still sell it for a $250,000 profit and not pay taxes on the profit if you've lived there for two years. So that's that's the easy one. The question about should you own a, the way you put it was, should you own each property in its own LLC in a land trust? That, to, to, to my non-lawyer brain, is overkill. And the reason it's overkill is because every LLC has its own tax ID number. It needs to have its own bank account. It needs to have its own tax return. Now, you can do the series LLC where everything kind of flows up to one LLC. But it's you don't need that level of asset protection in in my brain, especially not when you compare it to how much extra paperwork and filings and keeping tracks of things am I going to be dealing with by having all these LLCs. However, each property in its own land trust is a yes. Each property can be in its own land trust and, and the beneficiary of that land trust can be all the same LLC or it can be several different LLCs. Um, I feel like I talked about this recently, but uh, I used to have like 11 or 12 LLCs that owned all my properties. And I 
I about four years ago I pulled that down to I think four, and the the reason is number one, you got to look at what you're protecting with the LLC. You know the the idea of the LLC is to shield what's inside from what's coming outside from outside, and y- you can have. 20 properties in a in one LLC that because of the mortgages only have what I say 20 properties only have half a million dollars in equity in them. So what you're shielding with that LLC is only half a million dollars worth of actual equity. But yeah, there's 20 properties. Now, when when that equity grows because you've been paying down the mortgage to a million dollars, you might go, "Okay, I'm not feeling comfortable about this anymore." If there's some massive lawsuit that my insurance won't cover and I, I've got a million dollars at risk, then you could separate them out into two separate LLCs, right? So four LLCs to kind of divide up the equity. And also I've got a couple that are just because I have um, I have properties in different taxing entities. So like Kentucky properties all in one LLC, Indiana properties all in one LLC, because those require a different state tax return and you know, it's just easier to have those kind of segmented out. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think I'm going to have to listen to the recording again because <laughs> it kind of just just went went, so, went in one ear and it's like there's there's uh, you know no wall between one ear and the other to hear what's going well, on. Well, you'll be you'll be you'll you'll be there. Try on, to catch it later. You'll be yeah, and you'll be there on Saturday, and Randy will go through all of this stuff right. as well. You can go through that too. Yeah, yeah, and on on who's the trustee. Um, yeah, most people recommend that you, you know, if your name's Bob Schmorgasbord, you don't have your wife Helen Schmorgasbord be the trustee because that's going to be a little obvious <laughs> that right, the right. Schmorgasbords own this place. Um, different last name is good. There's a lot, there's a lot of recommendations about that. Some people say get one get a trustee who's out of state. Some say get a there. There's actually companies now that will serve as like a corporate trustee. So what the what the names and they have to have special licensing to do that in Ohio, by the way, and in, in most states, but they have that licensing. So it, it'll say like um, Land Trust Corp of America trustee, which is very anonymous, of course. And there's some I, I i'll tell you one of the primary things i've learned about using in using land trust for the last 25 years is the key thing about your trustee is they need to be responsive you know if you need to sell a property and they've got to sign something for the closing they need to like answer your calls and get the deed and take it down to the bank get it notarized and send it back in time or they're going to delay your closing you can't close without them doing that and they need to have a little bit of backbone because they will receive every building order on the property. They will sometimes get get letters from the city that say, we're prosecuting you, Helen Schmorgasbord trustee, because the property has an unresolved building order. And if you've got a trustee, it's going to freak out every time that happens, even though their trust agreement says that you will hold them harmless from any prosecution, fines, etc., uh, and of course, then you need to be responsive and go call the city and say, uh, yeah, Helen's not in charge of this. I am. You need to be sending this stuff to me. Uh, but sometimes there, there are people who just like, they lose their mind if they get a letter from the city and your trustee can't be one of those people. 
just as a practical matter. Yeah, I, I think a trust in Missouri, I, I've seen one pays the taxes in uh, in the county here in St. Louis County, mm-hmm. but it's not even listed, the trust is not even listed on the uh, Secretary of State website. So it's like, you know, that's kind of well, hidden a little bit. Yeah, mostly, no, no trust, that, trusts generally aren't. Yeah. Trusts are not entities in the same sense as a an LLC or a corporation is an entity. They they are they are a contract between a trustee and a beneficiary that defines what 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 the trustee's job is and what the beneficiary's uh, rights are. Right, so it's it's not it's not an entity like an LLC is an entity, so they're generally not filed with the state, and they don't have IR, they don't have um, EIN numbers with the IRS. So yeah, you'll learn more on Saturday. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for your call. I appreciate it. Lo- love hearing from St. Louisians, whatever you guys call yourself out there in St. Louis. Um, okay. Well, how much time do we have left, Mike? Two minutes. Holy cow. Okay. Well, I've got a one line question here that I think I can answer in two minutes. It is from Mary. It is from last week and it is, what is the best way to find master leases? It was one that we were not able to get to because so many people had questions for Lindsay last week. Um, the answer is primarily you are going to find master leases from people who already own rentals but who are fed up with the management part of it, which is the part that you are agreeing to take on by leasing their property, right? So uh, the absentee landlords list is a, is an awful list, but there's subsets of that list that would that might tell you that somebody's having a difficult time with their management. Uh, for instance, the eviction list or the code violations list, or um, possibly even something like the delinquent taxes list, also, though, looking for the, the those who are rental properties. Um, although in that case, if I saw that they were delinquent on their taxes, I'd probably go for an actual purchase because I would wonder if they would pay the taxes while I was master leasing the property from them. Um, I think that one of the biggest target markets for this, though, is people who are you know, say 65 to 85 years old and still own a rental. And mostly that's because they don't necessarily love it anymore. They're not, they're not real able to do the dealing with the tenants and the repairs, but they won't sell it because of the capital gains taxes. And your master lease solves that problem for them. They get to keep owning it until they die. And yet they don't have to pay capital gains because they didn't sell the property. So thank you for your question, Mary. Woo. Good Q&A week. Thanks folks for all the good questions. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.